This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to Think Health. Ellen Lee Beta with you. Today, how to interpret and communicate fetal heart rates and opening up about endometriosis. And it wasn't until I actually went to see my mum's gynaecologist that he actually started asking me all these questions about pain and gave me a physical examination as well and said, I think you have something called endometriosis, which I had never heard of. First, how close are you to your nearest hospital? If you're really unlucky, it's probably a couple of hours away and you can easily be transported by plane if need be. Now, imagine what life would be like if your nearest hospital was a few months away, by boat. This is one of the challenges facing healthcare in the Pacific Islands, where distances between islands can prevent timely access to medical services. Lack of resources and doctors and nurses also contribute to the health gap between Australia and our closest neighbours. The UTS World Health Organisation Collaborating Centre for Nursing, Midwifery and Health Development has been running for the last eight years. The program has been upskilling leaders from Pacific nations to improve health outcomes. A delegation has been in Sydney for the last two weeks and joined Think Health to discuss the challenges for healthcare in the Pacific. Hello, my name's Michelle Rumsey. I'm the director of the WHO Collaborating Centre for Nursing, Midwifery and Health Development at the University of Technology, Sydney. Michelle, can you tell me a little bit about this program you've been running? Yes, I can. It's a, it's a real honour to run this programme. Um, we've been a WHO collaborating centre since 2008. And what a collaborating centre is, is a technical arm of WHO for the expertise you cover. And the main reason we became a collaborating centre to assist them in their alliance is because the, the islands are small. They're, they're small nations. They're very divided. Their topography is quite different. And what, uh, Van- what islands are we talking about here? We're talking about uh, Vanuatu, Sol- Solomon Islands, Samoa, Tokelau, Nui. There's 14 14 countries within our alliance. And for example, Papua New Guinea has between 7 and 10 million population and a topography that's really tricky and people can't get from one end to the country. Vanuatu has over 300 islands. Solomon Islands has 900 islands. And then we have very small communities like Tokelau, which has about 2,000 people. So it's a very, very varied dynamic group who want to work together but their isolation makes it hard. And this program is all about building leadership I understand. It is. It's a leadership program um, but the, the structure is that because it's run through our the, the leaders in the Pacific they're the mentors of the program and on the majority of the time they work with our, our fellows and work out projects that would be of useful to the country. Then there, then there's several workbooks before they come here and discussions with our, our leaders in the Pacific, then our colleagues come to UTS and run a two-week program. But it doesn't finish there. We keep in contact and we, we 
do follow-up visits to the country and, and communication, and that's actually what we're just discussing at the moment, how we can all keep together after this programme is finished. So let's bring in some of those leaders right now. Yeah, hi, my name is Gordon. I'm from Solomon Islands. I am a nursing officer and I'm looking after the nursing administration in one of the remote provinces in the Solomon Islands. Hello, my name is Nancy. I am from Nauru. I work at the dialysis center, running the unit as a manager. Talofa, I'm Tamali Nielsen. I'm from Samoa. I work at the maternity ward at the TT Mall Hospital, well, the main uh, hospital in Samoa. Uh, Gordon, I might start with you. What are some of the health challenges in the Solomon Islands? I think uh, one of our <coughs> huge challenges in the health services in Solomon Islands is uh, human resources. You might understand that Solomon Islands, with the, with the current uh, increasing number of population, we still have the same number of nurses uh, in the workforce. So in order to, to, to reach out and even to provide the healthcare services to the remote, uh, even to the rural people, it's really a challenge because we don't have the capacity to, to provide that care because of uh, not enough uh, nurses. And Gordon, what's the population of the Solomon Islands? Uh, Solomon Islands population currently is uh, approximately 600,000 people. And that's spread across 900 islands? Exactly. What happens for the for someone on an island? Where do they go if they need to go to hospital? Is there one main hospital or are they scattered across all these islands? I think it's lucky for those who can access in terms of a road infrastructure. But for other, I think majority, like more than 80% of the communities, they only access by boat. And that, it all depends on the boat. Some of our communities or islands, the boat can reach them after two or three months. When you talk about increasing that nursing workforce, do you see the nursing workforce increasing on those individual islands or in main areas where there's a hospital? That's a really a challenge as well in terms of trying to motivate nurses to go out and work in the remote places. I think one of the influencing thing for our nurses is they want to work in urban centers. So it's really a challenge for us to find ways to make a fair distribution for all our nurses out to the remote places. But I think we are making a, a way, but it's not easy. Nancy, what about Nauru? What are some of the health challenges on Nauru? Uh, some of the health issues will be limited resources and then uh, staffing short of staffs and then the uh, health problem back home in the uh, primary health care is one of them is diabetes. You also said resources are an issue. On Nauru you've got one hospital. Yes. What what sort of resources does that hospital have and what would you like it to have? Well first of all maybe um, people, fundings, other equipments, um, relevant ones and then um, maybe time. So you, you don't have enough nurses or doctors yeah. on Nauru? Those, uh, yeah. And uh, back home, we're running the dialysis unit, which uh, we don't have the uh, nephro doctor. No nephro doctor. 
So it's just nurses running that yes, unit. that's right. So your expertise only goes so far, I imagine. Yes. You need that doctor for the... Yeah. What, what happens? Well, in um, emergency cases, we'll be uh, referring the patient to the maybe medical doctor or the, the one who can handle this problem. Tamali, tell me about Samoa. What, what is the geography of Samoa like? Samoa is about the population is like 180,000 people and we have two main big islands and it's Upolo and Savai and one small islands of Apolima and Manono. You work in the maternity centre. What? How many babies do you have each year? Yes, we deliver more than 3,000 babies a year. 3,000? Yes, and... uh, like almost only 17 midwives for for the maternity ward at all. So you have the staffing issue as well. You could definitely yes, use more yes. midwives. We have limited resources as well, like the other Pacific Islands. With staffing, a shortage of nurses and midwives in the wards. We also have a lack of uh, equipment for the... We have limited resources and we have like... We need some more equipment, such as incubators, baby cots, and uh, all those stuff that we need for for patient care. I'm going to open this up. What have you learned over the last two weeks from being here in Sydney? From me, Gordon, I think uh, I've learned a lot, but one thing it strikes me throughout the week is networking. I see that I understand where I should be part of my my, my team in terms of seeking assistance in terms of knowledge, in terms of fundings, in terms of materials, and in terms of sharing knowledge, like looking up and reading articles and journals regarding nursing. I think this is really something I I, I learned and I need to go back and also implement implement it in my small hospital. So networking and teamwork. Nancy, what what are your takeaways? Thank you. This program is really powerful. For the past two weeks, I've learned a lot, mostly uh, regarding leaders or managers. I've learned about um, teamwork, networking, motivation, planning, actions, developing plans. And um, it strengthened my skills. I really want to go back home and do it right now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and finally, Tamali? I've learned a lot and a variety of programs and uh, more knowledge. And I feel like I'm loaded with more skills. And uh, I think I'll share it, share it with my colleagues at home. Midwife Tamali ending that story. If you'd like to find out more, visit 2SER.com forward slash thinkhealth. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Communication among staff members in hospitals is vital no matter the procedure. But what happens if you are speaking a different language to your colleagues? This is a challenge facing midwives and obstetricians when interpreting fetal heart rates using a CTG machine. Fetal heart rate monitoring is a screening tool usually used during labour to see if a baby is distressed. 
Clinicians have different definitions for different changes in a baby's heart rate, which understandably causes confusion. Helen Cook is a clinical midwifery consultant at New South Wales Pregnancy and Newborn Services Network, who has implemented a training program to get clinicians speaking the same language when interpreting fetal heart rates. So fetal heart rate monitoring is the process of monitoring the baby's heart rate throughout pregnancy. It's done as a special type of uh, screening test. Um, It's done both antenatally and during labour. And we use a machine called a cardiotocograph, so a CTG machine. And how does fetal heart rate monitoring, how does that differ from, say, using a Doppler? It differs because the machine, the CTG machine, produces a graph paper that allows you to look at how the baby's heart rate responds to contractions or to maternal movement or fetal movement. The CTG plots the baby's heart rate on a graph that allows you to look and see It measures variability in the baseline, so how much it changes over the minute-to-minute changes. And it also measures whether it accelerates with the baby's movement or whether it decelerates with a contraction. So in labour, do you use it on all women or just some women? Um, It's used specifically on women with complex pregnancies. So when there are risk factors, I guess the aim of using a CTG is to support women with complex pregnancies to achieve a normal birth. So if we detect something that's happened during labour that might influence the baby's well-being or the fetal well-being in utero, then we use the CTG to try and get an idea of how the baby is. Are clinicians well trained in using the CTG machine? In actual application of it, yes. Interpreting the pattern takes a bit of skill really and over the years there have been multiple different guidelines about how you interpret we, we still haven't got it right and every 10 years somebody releases another guideline and changes the language that we use around how you review the actual fetal heart rate pattern. So they keep changing the language. So our communication around the fetal heart rate features, the features of the pattern, have varied over the years. So people get a bit confused. So that's interpreting the graph that comes out of the CTG. Yeah, yeah. Is that a case of new research is coming through that changes it? Kind of. I'm not sure why it changes all the time, but it seems to. It seems like somebody thinks that this is a better definition, particularly around around the way the baby's heart rate responds during labour. So normally after a contraction or during a contraction, the baby's heart rate will decelerate. So So go down. Go down. And that's a normal kind of response because there's a change in the oxygen flow through to the placenta while the contraction's happening. So the baby's heart responds in a normal sort of way to that happening. But they they have different names as to what they think affects that oxygen supply and blood flow through to the placenta. So they could be called late decelerations because they happen at the end of the contraction or early because they happen at the beginning of the contraction. Or they can be called variables because they happen at different times and probably due to cord occlusion rather than the uterine blood flow. So they have different names and they there could be a combination of what's cord and what's uterus that's causing the deceleration. So then they give that a different name and so it gets a bit confusing for clinicians. Is that confusing because if you go from one hospital, one maternity unit to another, it's different? It's confusing across countries, I think. Like there have been American guidelines, there have been English guidelines. Australia now has its own set of guidelines. Everybody uses a different terminology for what's described as a very similar type of deceleration. 
And so people use mixed terms. Part of my research was to look at the different language that we use around fetal heart rate monitoring. And for one deceleration, I found 33 different terminologies used for the same deceleration, which just shows the confusion that, that's out there. And part of our education and my research was to try and get people speaking the same language so that we improved our communication with each other. So you're saying that obstetricians and midwives don't feel confident in teaching? They're uncomfortable teaching it more than doing it. They do it all the time and they interpret it. But they have, before we did the education, they weren't sure if they were escalating to, if the midwives were escalating to an obstetrician, they weren't actually sure that they were using the right language. So they a bit, you know, hummed and hard around it and were a bit, oh, well, it's just not right. Whereas now they can go, I want you to come and see Mrs. Jones. She's got a pathological fetal heart rate pattern. And that's enough to get somebody to come and to check it properly. So tell me, Helen, a little bit about this research that you did. It was called, you developed a program called FONT. What was that? So FONT was an education program developed by New South Wales Health to try and teach our clinicians about fetal heart rate monitoring and about the management of maternity emergencies. So you got a whole bunch of clinicians in the room and started getting them all speaking the same (laughs) language. So we trained about 240 trainers across the state, which about 30 in each of what were then our area health services. So we did this education about eight years ago. And we trained 30 clinicians from each of the local health or area health services to be trainers for FONT. And we developed up an education package that was the same for the whole of the state. So everybody was learning exactly the same material, but it was being delivered by a range of practitioners across the state. So midwives, general practitioners and obstetricians were all the teachers. And they were also the people sitting in the room (laughs) learning. There's a lot of group work and discussion that we created hoping to improve teamwork and communication. How did you decide, you mentioned the deceleration, there's there's 33 different terms, how do you decide which is the right term to run with? Uh, We used a guideline. In New South Wales we were using the um, English guidelines, so the guidelines that were developed by the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynaecologists and we used their guidelines as the base. So the clinicians of New South Wales decided that was the guideline they wanted to use and we used those those definitions as the base for the education. This was eight years ago. Do we know if this training has had an impact to improve that communication? Well, certainly my research showed that our clinicians learnt a lot. So we know that they changed to be using the one terminology. We had an improvement of something like 95% in the using the right terminology to describe the fetal heart rate pattern. So the aim of that was to ensure that we all understood what was being said if somebody used the right terminology. So we definitely showed an improvement in people's knowledge around fetal heart rate pattern interpretation. Um, We showed some difference with clinical outcomes, but it's hard to associate that with the actual education. As a statewide program, you know, there are 100,000 births a year across New South Wales. It was very hard to measure whether we directly had improved clinical outcomes. I have been able to show a change in outcomes across the state, but being able to directly link them to the education has been difficult. Are you saying that the, the poor communication and the poor interpretation of CTG meant that babies were 
dying or being injured? It, we there probably yes. There were certainly were some, a number of adverse events that we were able to describe before we did the education. When I looked at trying to show clinical outcomes, I looked at um, a database that we use in our neonatal intensive care units, and I looked at a group of term babies that were born spontaneously, so nobody had. Uh, they hadn't had a cesarean section, so they were born vaginally, where there was an outcome, an admission outcome into the nursery of fetal distress, which is what we find with the fetal heart rate patterns. It's kind of the descriptor. And I looked at those babies before we did the education program, and, and across the state there were 34 babies that died over a period of four years. So there's not a lot of babies that die. But what we showed after the education is we only had 24 dead babies in that subgroup. So it was only a change of 10 babies and across 100,000 births, it doesn't mean much, but I'm sure it means a lot to those 10 women who are holding their babies today. And it certainly is a reduction of 30% in the number of babies that died. But statistically, I can't prove that we made a difference. Helen Cook, Clinical Midwifery Consultant at New South Wales Pregnancy and Newborn Services Network. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3, online at 2SER.com or on your favourite podcast app. Living with chronic pain is hard, but it's even harder when you don't know what's causing it. Sylvia Friedman was 21 before she found out that her chronic pain was due to endometriosis, a disease that attacks the female reproductive organs, often leading to infertility. According to Endometriosis Australia, it affects 1 in 10 women, and yet there is no cure, with some doctors recommending pregnancy as the only option. To try and change this, Sylvia has developed Endoactive with her mum, an organisation trying to start a conversation with the nation about endometriosis. Jake Morecambe spoke to Sylvia Friedman about her journey. In the beginning, my symptoms, it was just period pain, right? So that's when I was really young and you're told that period pain's normal. So you cruise through years and years and years of getting your period, having it be really, really painful, but that's normal, that's part of being a woman, all that kind of stuff. And then it wasn't until I was older, like in my early 20s, that I started to get the other sorts of symptoms irregular bleeding, spotting. So with for some girls they'll get they'll bleed like heavily for weeks and not tell anyone and not just think oh that I guess this is just something I have to deal with like we're never told that that all these things are are abnormal which is which is terrible. And then the migraines, the sinus problems, digestive disorders like it just got to the point where anything I ate or drank would give, would give me such an upset stomach mm. that what else? Chronic UTIs. I could be just walking to work and be fine one minute and then by the time I arrive, be like, I'm in so much pain, I need to go to the hospital and get on, on antibiotics. And then, and with all these like sort of random ailments that you are constantly sick with, it starts to make you, if you don't know what's going on, you don't have a diagnosis, it starts to seem like you're just a flaky person. <laughs> you know. How, how did that kind of then move into university did that when I was here at UTS I was in the end barely making it to any of my classes like I was either too sick or too tired and um 
pelvic pain's a funny one because when I was in my 20s, I was on the pill and because I would get such painful periods, I would just skip skip my period. Like So I'd keep, continue to take the hormonal pills right throughout, but I was still getting this terrible pain like in, in my lower abdomen. It's pelvic pain, but I didn't have the language for that back then. So I was thinking, well, it's not period pain because I don't actually have my period. I'm just in all this pain. And it wasn't until I actually went to see my mum's gynecologist about getting chronic UTIs, I think, that he actually started asking me all these questions about pain and and period pain and in the end said gave me a physical examination as well and said, I think you have something called endometriosis, which I had never heard of, had no idea what it was. Um, and I was booked in for surgery a couple of months later. Why did you go in for surgery? So in order to formally diagnose endo, you need to have a laparoscopy, which is keyhole surgery in a couple of places around your belly button and um, lower abdomen. And they kind of have a look around and if the endometriosis is there, um, then they will excise it in the, in the surgery. What, is that, what does that ex- exactly do? Um, so it's a lot of the time endo looks like it, like inside. It kind of looks like cobwebs sticking your organs together. And that's obviously what can cause pain because things start to be pushed and pulled where they shouldn't be. Sometimes it can look like confetti, like it's this little stuff sprinkled all over, but it gets um, excised during the surgery and it needs to be removed properly in order for it to not grow back. So if there's even a little bit left, then, you know, it's no good because you'll probably find yourself in pain still and having to need another surgery quite soon. Right. So that is it curable? There's no cure for endometriosis, no. But there is a lot of different ways you can treat it and, and manage it. Which include what? Uh, in my mum's researching, she actually found out about a medication called Vizan, which was being used uh, to treat endometriosis in some countries overseas, but not in Australia. What exactly is it? So it's a, it's a, a pill that you take every day, but the main ingredient is Dianagest, and it doesn't contain estrogen and other uh, hormones that um, the oral contraceptive pill usually does contain. So it actually works to reduce the size of the lesions um, of endometriosis, which other medications just, they don't, just don't have that effect. So anyway, in her research um, and finding out that this was available overseas and it was having really good results, um, she just wondered why we didn't have it available to us here. So we And why are, wasn't it available here? Well, came down to money, like to marketing really. I mean, Australia is really far away and we have a lot less people than other countries. And while we weren't told that explicitly, I think um, it basically came down to like a lack of demand for the medication. So, which we didn't agree with, obviously, if endo affects one in 10 women, then obviously you'd think that there would be a high demand. That's 10% of the female population that um, possibly has endometriosis or more. So why shouldn't we have this medication available to us here? Um, So that's why we started a petition um, on change.org and we just didn't expect it to go as mad as it did. Um, And it ended up getting 
74,500 signatures Mm -hmm. and about 19,500 comments. Um, And most of those were from women with endo who had been suffering, didn't feel they had anyone to talk to. Some of them didn't even know that anyone else had endometriosis. Like this is like a light bulb moment that they were like, oh, my God, somebody else is experiencing what I'm experiencing. I thought I was the only person because that's how little it's it's spoken about. How does that make you feel that that you can that you're connecting like <laughs> other people to something that they might not have heard before from yeah. a medical professional? It's it's a great feeling. Like I think any time that I can just make one other girl feel less alone is, you know, is the best feeling, really. I mean, that was the whole point of starting Endoactive is because we had so many comments like that on the petition, 19,500 of them, that we really felt obligated to give those people somewhere else to go where they could continue to talk and continue to connect and and feel less isolated after the life of the petition was over. Um, and that's why I, I said we, we, we should just quickly start a Facebook page and call ourselves something and start bringing people over so that they, so that when this is finished, they're not just lost, you know, that this is something that we can continue. Jake Morgan speaking to Sylvia Friedman, the founder of Endoactive. If you'd like to hear more from that conversation, visit 2SER.com forward slash the chat or search for the chat on your favourite podcast app. If you'd like to catch up on anything you've heard today, head to 2SER.com forward slash think health. If you've enjoyed today's show, make sure you subscribe so you won't miss a moment. And if you have any questions, go and see your GP. Think Health is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health and 2SER. I'm Ellen Liebeter. Thanks for your company.